Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a podcast about folklore, the paranormal, urban legends, and pretty much anything that I find strange and interesting. Joining me today is a good friend of mine who is also a rather strange and interesting fellow, my friend Jeff. How's it going today, buddy? <laughs> pretty good, not too bad. Glad to be a strange and interesting person on the Strange and Interesting Podcast, so... Yes, and when I say strange and interesting, I always mean it in the nicest way possible. In a good way. <laughs> yes. So Jeff and I have known each other for many years. We actually met back in college when both of us were at UW Oshkosh. And one of the things that I just thought was interesting about how we met, um, when I was accepted there, originally I was supposed to be, my the roommate they originally signed to me was a guy who went to the same school as me. But then he decided that he didn't want a room with me. He said it was nothing personal. He just didn't think that they put two people from the same school together. Well, you know, whatever doesn't really matter. So that's when I found out that I was being, I was going to be assigned to room with this guy from Illinois. And uh, that's when I met this Jeff guy. And it turned out he was actually a pretty cool guy. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was it was interesting because you hear stories from people about how whenever they get that first roommate, it's like they don't get along or uh they're just they don't really have much in common, but what I thought was was interesting about about us is like our I our interests were like about 90 95% identical. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, both of but us. Yeah, you do hear some roommate horror stories, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, because the I know the guy I got my second year, my my uh, sophomore year, he was at least for the first semester, he was the kind of guy that just you know we didn't really have anything in common. So other than like, hey, how's it going? You know, we never really or talk, you know, small talk in the rooms. We never really interacted with each other very much. Uh, and I know we actually did end up uh, rooming together. Was it our sophomore junior year that? It was the second year. I had kind of bounced around for to a number of different roommates the second year. I roommate was roomed with someone from Westfield, Wisconsin. That didn't work out. That's a whole other story. And then I roomed with another individual from Port Washington, Wisconsin, named Brad. I can't recall his last name. I try to think of it sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I know he was from Port Washington, Wisconsin. So I would go there on trips and stuff with my parents. So that always stuck out in my mind. Because uh, halfway through my sophomore year, um, the or our sophomore year, uh, my roommate from the at that time, he just moved to another room with another friend of his. And since I didn't really want to do the single room fee and, you know, you were, weren't really getting along with your roommate, we roomed together again, which actually worked out rather well. Yeah. But of course, uh, we're not here to talk about our good old college days. We're here to talk about something strange and interesting, something that actually happened well after the college years. Now, last summer, uh, you had mentioned that you went to an archaeology field camp. Yes, yes. 
So before we begin, I should probably mention that most of my perceptions about archaeology and what archaeologists do were formed by watching the Indiana Jones movies. So I assume that this field camp was supposed to give you an idea of what an archaeologist does in their day-to-day job. Right, yes. And uh, that was kind of my perception, too, is the whole Indiana Jones movies and whatnot. And interestingly enough, I believe it was the woman who played Marion from the, uh, I believe her name was Marion. Yeah, Marion Ravenwood or something. Right, yeah. She's actually from the area right by where this uh, field school was located in Greene County, Illinois. Oh, cool. Field school is just one county over in Calhoun County. But So since you've gotten a taste now of what an archaeologist does in their day-to-day job, how much of being an archaeologist involves punching Nazis in the face? Very little, but there was always a joke about that. You know, it was like always like, so when do we get to fight Nazis? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that always came up. So, yeah, it was always, you know, kind of that or... You're all, you have to keep meticulous records of everything because, you know, you you never know when you're going to find, you know, the thing that should not be, so to speak. You know, you never know if you're going to find the jade winged octopus statue. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, if you're going to try to become an archaeologist, you probably should brush up more on your record keeping skills as opposed to your uh, fighting skills and your bullwhip skills and uh, punching people, Nazis in the face. Right. Yeah. But uh, knowing how to use a trowel, which can be used as a weapon, you know, would, <laughs> would come in handy too. I know I had never really used one before. So, you know, if you already know how to use one and are familiar with some of the basic tools, that, that would help. But it's not necessary. Well, and I suppose you could also get give someone a pretty good whack in the head with a shovel. Right. Yeah, that too. And the shovels that they had there, uh, there were shovels that had, you know, like a blade around the edge. So definitely could be used as a weapon for sure. So you're saying that in essentially the Indiana Jones films lied to me and that an archaeologist's work generally does not involve punching Nazis in the face? No, no. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess uh, Well, I guess that's the end of this episode because there's going to be nothing strange and interesting. No, just kidding. <laughs> in fact, so, just a little side note. I remember being in an anthropology class, and uh, I opened up the textbook, and usually like chapter one of most modern anthropology textbooks will have a section, what anthropology is not. And there's usually a picture of Indiana Jones there. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice, because back in 1998, I had the opportunity to do an archaeology field camp. One, see, the way that UW Oshkosh worked is you had your two semesters, which I think were like, what, 14 weeks. And then after the regular semester was done, you had the option to take an interim class. And one of the interim classes was... was an archaeology field camp. The professor's name was Dr. Jeff Bame. I think that was his last name, Bame or Bohm. I think it was pronounced Bame. I thought it might have been Bem. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think it was spelled like B-O-H-M. But the, he, uh, he had this camp he did where they excavated 
uh, the, I think it was like the Fox tribe. Um, so the, around, and it was somewhere around like Lake Butamore. So I was going to go on it, but then I was working at a scout camp during the summer, uh, during my college years. And because of the position I got for that particular year, I had to go to a training camp down uh, in the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that field camp, but I have a friend who did that a couple of years, our friend Shannon. Um, she, so I might have to bring her on sometime and uh, have, maybe have her talk about that. But let's move on to the camp that you did. So let's start. What made you interested in signing up for this archaeology field camp? Anyways, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, um, I also had the offer, as you did, to go to the archaeology dig. I believe it was called the Bell Site. And yeah, right, like you said, familiar. they were excavating um, areas that you know belong to the Fox tribe, and I think they were finding French artifacts there as well, from what I could understand. I remember hearing something related to that. I didn't go because I had college courses to take that summer, and I had taken the archaeology class because I was an anthropology major in at UWO. I should mention that. And I had taken the archaeology class. At the time, um, archaeology, and I don't know if it's just my younger years or what it was, it was a little bit of a turnoff for me at, at the time. And uh, I don't know, maybe it was the meticulous nature of it, but I began thinking about it, and I began thinking that, uh, well, I always felt that, you know, archaeology is something that you do. And, you know, if you like history, and I heard a YouTuber actually mention this, and I like this, if you were to actually do history and make history an activity that you do, it's archaeology. Because the nature of the class, Intro to Archaeology, didn't really have us going out on a dig at the time. I, uh, you know, couldn't experience archaeology, and I'm about to date myself right here, but uh, what they had us do was a CD-ROM program, and it was <laughs> called Fagawi Land. It was just, it was probably the best thing you had if you're not to actually go on an archaeological dig, something to simulate, you know, going on a dig, if you don't have, if you're not able to, some universities will, I believe there's one in Evansville, Indiana, if I'm not mistaken, where they actually have an archaeology site on campus that students, you know, could dig at. But, you know, here there wasn't that. So the uh, program I remember not really liking at the time. But then all of a sudden, I really began reading more on archaeology, watching videos, and I began to really have an increased interest in it a lot, you know, all, all of a sudden. And uh, I thought, yeah, you know, I never went on a dig. I kind of, it was a bit of a regret, to be honest with you, that I didn't go back in 98. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I have an anthropology degree. I never did a field school. And I thought maybe, you know, because I work as a substitute teacher now, could be a possibility. Maybe it could lead to some future summer employment, like seasonal work on an archaeology site. So I thought, yeah, I'll definitely look into this. I began looking around. I looked, I started looking kind of late. And I don't recommend doing that. I think if you're going to look for something for the summer, probably be better 
uh, in springtime to really start looking. I had started late, and uh, thankfully for me, someone had canceled that was in this class. So now they had another slot to fill, and I managed to get in. The place I went to was called the CAA, Center for American Archaeology. So, yeah, that's, you know, the story of how I got to do this and uh, got in, into it and why I wanted to do it now at, you know, this time. So After you signed up for the, the, the class, did they give you any sort of orientation before you started digging or was it just, okay, we're going to put you in the field and we're going to teach you as you go? Yeah, there was like an orientation right before I was wondering, you know, what if I had to bring, what I had to bring, you know, what would I have to bring for this? It was going to be four weeks, and I wasn't sure what I needed to bring. Do I need to bring equipment? And they sent me a list of what I needed to bring. I did not need to bring excavation equipment of any kind, no trowels, no shovels. They had all that there at the Center for American Archaeology. So they had all that that I could use, and, you know, that was very convenient, and they uh, told you to bring, you know, like a backpack, a few other things, absolutely needed a water bottle. I mean, that the water bottle was my lifeline. It kept me alive, <laughs> literally. So you, you need a water bottle. So, yeah, all, all that stuff you needed, but they would give you a list um, when you sign up for it, telling you what you need. But to say another thing about it, like I said, it's called the Center for American Archaeology. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into a little bit of the history about it or um, how it differs from, like, say, like a university. Or... Sure. Um, before that, though, one other question. Now, when you okay. were – I know the way they did the field camp at that they did for UW Oshkosh, they gave you the option to camp at the site so when you were doing this field school did they give did you like camp at the site for however long you were there or did you like stay at a hotel or somewhere else off the site and then just commute back and forth yeah so the uh, CAA is located in Campsville Illinois which is just a little north maybe I don't know maybe it's about an hour or so, maybe 50, 60 miles north of St. Louis. And uh, what they had there is they had a dorm. It was called the McDougal Dorm, named after Genevieve McDougal, who had started like a middle school pro archaeology program for, for kids. And that was the name of the dorm, and we were able to stay there. I was told when we were staying in the dorm that they had air conditioning there and they've only had the air conditioning as of 2015 and i believe the dorm had been there since 1971 so <laughs> yeah thankfully i got to be in air conditioning because i i've heard people who stayed at the 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 fox site that they or the bell site that they did for uw oshkosh that you know some of them they they use as an excuse to go camping and party at night so you know, I guess if you spent all day in the out in the sun digging in the mud, you know, at the end of the day, you'd certainly want a cold beer or four. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Campsville's a very small town. I think it's 
250, 300 people, something like that. And there's not much really there, uh, but there is a bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of these small towns, they at least, you know, will have the bar. Um, there was a place to eat, so you didn't have to bring food. You would get three meals a day, and it was a place called The Landing. So you get breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You had all that. Now, in terms of laundry, and you would get, you know, very dirty. I know I had sent you a picture that yeah. gave you an idea <laughs> of how dirty it could be, although that picture is a bit of an outlier because that happened the final week when we were bailing units out of water, you know, bailing out water, and I got especially dirty. Usually you wouldn't get that dirty. It was just kind of like, oh, let's take a picture because it was kind of unusual to get that dirty. But, yeah, you had to go to a laundromat. The laundromat was in Alton, Illinois, which was about 40 miles away. So you'd have to go there. Um, I was a little familiar with Alton because I'd read Troy Taylor's books. He writes a lot of paranormal stuff about Alton. Um, Alton is, you know, regarded as one of the more, according to him anyway, one of the more haunted small towns in America. So, yeah, I wanted to go check out Alton. I didn't have a problem driving the 40 miles. But, uh, yeah, that was something people had to be aware about because I don't believe there was any mention of it. And, you know, I usually had to take a few people to do laundry because, um, you know, I had a car with me. But, yeah, there were people from all over the country at this. There were people from, you know, California, Orange County, and San Francisco, San Diego, to, you know, the East Coast, you know, New York, Massachusetts. So, yeah, pretty much everywhere. Okay, so what is the difference between what the Center for American Archaeology does versus what a, a university would do? The uh, Center for American Archaeology, yeah, was founded by Stuart Strever in 1953. He was a professor at Northwestern University in Evanston. And uh, he had come up with, uh, he'd established this as its center in Campsville because could easily buy a lot of the buildings in houses in the small you know town of Campsville, so it was easy to establish like a base there. It was relatively inexpensive, but uh, because he wasn't receiving a whole lot of funding, funding, but he knew Stuart Strieber knew how to sell archaeology to the public. He really did, and uh, it used to be that if you wanted to do archaeology, you had to kind of go through like a university system, or you had to know an archaeologist. That was what you had to do. But his the Center of American Archaeology, you didn't have to. Anyone could sign up. Nowadays, and I did check earlier today, I believe it's still $700 a week. You could do one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, $700 a week, and uh, you could do archaeology. Now, I realize it's kind of a pay-to-play system in a way, but... It is still like a rare experience. Where else would you do archaeology? A lot of people may never do archaeology if it wasn't for this. And I did feel like it was worth it in that regard. I really did. And with my group, I don't know if this is true with every group, but if you were there four weeks or if you were there at the end 
But yet, if you're there four weeks, they offered a fifth week free of charge. The people who went on this field school, were there a lot of like college students who were studying archaeology or anthropology, or was it just people who were like, hey, I want to pay several hundred dollars to go dig in a field and maybe find something interesting? Yeah, I would say about 90% were uh, anthropology or archaeology majors. So I'd assume they probably did it for like college credits. Right, and you could do it for college credit. But uh, there were some people that were just doing it. I know there was someone that was an English major. Yeah, most of them were university students. In fact, I was the second oldest person there myself, second oldest. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the site? So what uh, was the name of the site? And so you mentioned it was down in Illinois. Uh, So what's the name of the site? And what are some of the, if you can give us like a brief history of the, the site that you were at. Okay, yes. So the site that I was at was called the German site. And I believe it's named that the person who discovered the site, or so I had been told by one of the students, was his last name was German, so that's why they called it that. That particular site was uh, found by the site director, an individual by the name of Jason King. He had found it using a magnetometer, which would um, show where different things were like burnt wood or house basins. And he was able to uh, put the uh, squares, the units, right on top of these house basins. So it had already been started by the time I had gotten there, I believe. They started excavating it in 2019. And it was in 2020, I, I believe, was an off year because of the pandemic. But in 2021 was when we were there. And uh, there had already been some excavating of it. I was in unit, it was 48, and there was another unit, 47, right next to us. And I just remember they just kept pouring out the artifacts, one thing after another. But uh, yeah, a little bit about, though, the people who lived there. They were a part of what was called the uh, late woodland period, and uh, that... uh, I always say it kind of roughly corresponds with the European uh, Viking Age. Went from 800 A.D. to 1200 A.D. In fact, there was someone there who was studying the Viking Age in college. And I even said, you know, this is perfect. You know, this is still that time frame, give or take a century or two. The uh, late woodland period was a bit different from other periods. The middle woodland, they had much more elaborate artifacts. That was a period right before the late woodland. They were finding figurines they'd find. It was part of the Hopwell trading network. So, you know, you would have obsidian that would come from the Yellowstone area, mica that would come from the Appalachian Mountains, copper from Lake Superior, shells from the Gulf of Mexico, you know, all that kind of stuff that you would find with Hopwell trading networks that have been going on for, I think, close to 2,000 years. But the late woodland period was different because all of a sudden that trade had stopped. It it had completely stopped. And what had happened was there during this time period, there was a population explosion. 
literally the uh, areas went from being small villages of about maybe 50 to 100 people to 10 times that, around 1,000 people living there. In fact, in this county, this is the third most remote county in Illinois, Calhoun County. Today, it's about 5,000 people. They estimate there was quite a few more during this time period, quite a few more um, Native Americans living there. When you're talking about the trade networks, I know Cahokia was supposed to have been a really big trading center back then. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if the if the people at this site traded with the Cahokia, but I remember learning something about that, how the city, which I think it's was probably around the same time period that this site reached its population boom, but uh, they estimate that Cahokia had a population similar to London at the same time. So it's, it is amazing how large some of these population centers were. Cause I think that a lot of people who don't really look into native American history probably assume that it was all just, you know, these small groups living in, you know, shelter, portable shelters that they would take down and then move as to follow the seasonal migrations of, you know, animals or just move for whatever reason. But yeah, they actually were several sites where they had permanent cities and some of them were actually quite large. Right. And the interesting thing about uh, this site is that uh, they were hunter gatherers at this site. And what they discovered here, what Stuart Strever discovered when he excavated the Coster site was that uh, they had their hunter gatherers, but it was usually believed that hunter gatherers were nomadic, um, that they would travel around. Here they found out they were hunter gatherers, but they lived in permanent settlements. And the old, well, I'll get into that a little bit about the Coster site, maybe a little bit later, but yeah, that wasn't in any of the textbooks. It was always just assumed that hunter-gatherers were nomadic, that they were not living in these permanent settlements. And they found out here that they were living in permanent settlements because they could, because the amount, the reason why they chose this site and the reason why we're coming to excavate this site is because it was in an area called the Lower Illinois Valley. And Literally, there are hundreds of sites in this area because everyone wanted to live there because you had all these bluffs. It's a little bit different than the uh, northern part of Illinois. You know, Illinois is sometimes referred to as flat land, but not so much in the southern part of it. So you would have bluffs and that in these bluffs, there would be valleys there and it would be warmer in the valleys in the wintertime and much warmer and hot in the summertime. You could really feel the heat. Someone even said that I feel like I'm perpetually in a shower and I can't get out. So yeah, because I would I would imagine that with the just the geography uh, probably prevented the winds from cooling you guys down there. Right. Yeah, and uh, it was warmer there in the winter time. That's why they chose it. But the abundance of food that the Native Americans had access to was enormous. And they, you know, there was white-tailed deer, there was rabbits, they had raccoons, 
plus all the waterfowl like ducks, geese, swans, all kinds of things to, to hunt bear, you know, freshwater mussels, and plus a lot of other things like duck potatoes and marsh elder, which I think has a lot of seeds to it, um, all different types of nuts, um, walnuts, hazelnuts, hickory nuts, pecans, uh, all sorts of massive abundance of food, and they would fish. Um, it's believed that they, they, they found fish hooks that they made out of deer bone, but they, it's believed that they would also use nets possibly woven from plant fiber that they would drag across these like backwater pools because the Illinois River is right there, but there would be these like pools and you would see it driving down there, these like small lakes near it and fish would get caught in there. People have tested the theory of how much fish you could get using like a net dragging across one of these pools and they caught like 300 fish in almost no time at all. It's amazing how effective some of this ancient technology is. I mean, just as an example, this is more European, of course, than, uh, you know, the Native American. But many years ago, I remember seeing a documentary about uh, the Norsemen and how they could have reached North America. And one of the things that they were testing is they had they were testing the clothing that they would use to protect themselves from the cold. So they had two volunteers, one dressed in recreation of clothing that uh, they would have worn back then, and then the other was dressed in modern cold-weather outdoor clothing. They spent all day hanging around outside by the, by the ocean, and they had like some device or monitor on them to test how effectively it would, it would trap their body heat in. And this ancient clothing, this replica ancient clothing, actually was almost as effective as the modern day one. But that is interesting that they had this really effective way to catch all these fish to support their population. Right, yeah. Um, all sorts of ways to get hunt and gather food. In fact, in a lot of ways, it really sounds like, you know, they had a very, like, peaceful way of life for many years and uh you know they really like um had all they needed and uh really kind of lived if at all possible the closest thing i've ever heard to a group of people living in like a utopia and it sounds like they did for uh you know many centuries they, they were able to have these permanent housing settlements these permanent houses and yet they didn't have to plant anything they didn't have to plant crops native americans they had the knowledge of corn beans and squash they had the knowledge of it but they didn't need to implement it they w would basically go a couple thousand years before they had to implement it now the late woodland period the 800 a.d to 1200 a.d was when they began to implement it because the population began to explode and they had to, and they had excavated some burials, and they found that in this late woodland time period, for the first time, they found some skeletons with arrowheads lodged into them, which was an indication that now, during this time period, for the first time ever, warfare was happening, is where that was not happening before. So my theory with this whole site 
this whole area is that uh, it's kind of a situation where there was a really good thing that not a lot of people knew about. And as more people found out about it, more people wanted a share of it. And as more people wanted a share of it, more people came in, it got competitive. And then later on, it got violent. Now, when the the population reached its height and then started to decline, do they know what possibly could have caused the population decline? Now, you mentioned the, the arrowheads and the skeletons, so it's certainly possible warfare did it, but was there any other factors that they think may have been involved? Well, here's the interesting thing in this area, and this is probably where I'll talk about, uh, and I have a book here on it called Coster, which is the site that the Center for American Archaeology excavated in the 1970s, from 69 to around 79. Um, Stuart Strieber, who ran it at the time, excavated this area, and this was this was world famous. Um, this was in the New York Times. 30,000 people a year in one of the years in the mid-70s came to the site to check it out. There were people from Japan coming, people from all over. There was in the mid-70s a heightened interest in kind of like all things Native American. So that might have had something to do with it. But uh, there were a lot of people coming. And uh, what had happened is they excavated this site um, right near, you know, the Center for American Archaeology. And what they found was it was kind of like a fossilized layer cake. You had what what are called horizons. What uh, horizons are, horizon represents an occupation, meaning how long the people had lived there. So they dug, they found that the soil was dark. When the soil's dark, that means there was an occupation there. And uh, they had discovered this site, you know, a farmer tipped them off. They discovered it in 69. They brought in a guy who's specialized in like burials and stuff, and they realized that this was a massive site. First horizon was the horizon of the late woodland period. And they lived there for a period of time, the uh, 800 AD to 1200 AD. Then they left. They might have left because they ran out of firewood. They're not 100% sure. But when they left, they left the site, they abandoned it. As they abandoned it, slope washed from the bluffs and mud and dirt covered the site, making a perfect like preservation. No one lived there for centuries. The oldest that I'm aware of was the late Archaic. And they were there for a period of time. They left the site, the dirt slope wash covered it preserving it perfectly then another group came in middle archaic the slope wash came down covered that perfectly then another group early archaic slope wash came down covered that then you had the early woodland middle woodland and late woodland and each one each horizon each occupation was preserved and usually you don't have that on archaeological sites Usually there a lot of times these horizons will be intermixed, but because each one was covered with a layer of dirt that uh, the site was able to be preserved. Yeah, that, that's the interesting thing about it. So they have a clear idea of who was there and they dug down 
30 feet, about 30 feet going down 13 different horizons. So 13 different occupations of different people. And then they wanted to go further, but they hit the water table and they couldn't go down any further. Stuart Strever would go around. He would um, go to like NBC Today, I think it was, and give various talks to try to raise money because it was getting dangerous now. You know, he was worried people might get buried. You could look on uh, pictures on Google of the Coster site. You could see it might have been dangerous. This was a much larger scale than what we did. What we did was we were just um, digging one occupation, the late woodland, and that was it. But here they were going the whole thing. When an archaeologist is at like a, a site, how do they determine where they're going to dig? Because obviously to just raise everything and you know dig out an entire site would be extremely time consuming. And I imagine you could potentially damage more of the site than you would you would really want to. So how do they determine, okay, we're going to dig over in this area as opposed to over in this area over here? There would be a number of different ways. Usually they would do like a surface scan. That's the first step. What do you find on the surface? A lot of times you don't find much. Certainly some areas over the years people have picked things up off the ground. I was surprised. I went for a hike up in one of the bluffs just like hiking around. And I happened to find a small little blade. It was, I believe, the second picture that I had sent to you um, in, in those pictures that I'm holding in my hand. It was a little like chirp blade. And I just found that right on the surface. But uh, yeah, so a surface scan was one way. Also, there's another way to do shovel tests where you're digging like test pits, usually about 10 meters apart from one another to try to see if there's something there. But in the case of like the Coster site that I mentioned, there were artifacts everywhere and a farmer had tipped off Stuart Strever that there were all these artifacts there. He happened to be an archeologist, the head of the anthropology department at Northwestern. So he used that as his field school. Okay, so they, it sounds like uh, with modern technology, it's greatly helped it because it's not like hit or miss. It's like, okay, you find, you, you use this uh, these devices to scan the ground, and if you see an anomaly in an area, you know this is probably going to be in a good place to look, whereas if you see another area where there's not really much there, you probably don't want to waste your time in that specific section. Right, and like I said, the area we were digging, the German site, I, I know a magnetometer was used, and... I don't really know too much about that. I've never used one. I've never saw one being used. There was another field school there. I guess they did have an option to actually use it. I didn't use it, but they would use it, and they found the uh, house basins on that, the bottom, like the floors of the houses, and that was what they picked to excavate. To give me an idea, I know there's sort of a stereotype of Native Americans living in teepees and that, but these are much more, much different than that and much more like permanent in that they made them with like posts and then they would dig like a trench. Uh, usually it was about like 12 by 8 
was usually the size. There were some that were bigger, but uh, then they would take like uh, make a frame around it of sticks, like a stick frame. They would then take like a mud plaster, which would be like mud and clay, and make the walls of it. So that's how they would make these uh, houses. It sounds kind of like they're like wigwams. Kind of like that, sort of. So I think, yeah. weren't wigwams permanent? Because I know teepees were meant to be, I think those were mainly for, like, the the tribes that lived on the plains. Yeah, wigwams, I believe, where I know, like, others had, like, longhouses. Yeah. I believe those were more permanent. But, yeah, these were, like I said, meant to be permanent. I'm told they would last about 40 years. They're not sure, like, there was no, like, front or back wall where the doors would be. So they think they probably made, like, uh, mats, like, interwoven mats with fabrics and plants. Or it could have been animal skins. So I don't know, really know much about archaeology. I just know a very, very little bit about it from that anthropology class I took with the professor we mentioned before. It was like just called intro to anthropology, so it doesn't it what didn't go too much into detail. I mean, I remember one of the techniques that they usually would use, and this is where the record keeping comes in. They would section off an area like in a grid, and then they would one of the records they would have to do is they'd have to keep like track of okay, if we found a piece of pottery, we found it in this section of square a twelve or you know, however, so uh, what are some other techniques they would use when on the when they excavate a site like this? When you would excavate a site, there would be in if you would find something, there would be a lot of paperwork involved. So you would have to put it in a bag. You'd have to label like the site number, the name of the site, what was found, even if it was, you know, something like a flake. And a lot of times you would find these chert flakes. And you would have to um, label it, um, put it in a bag, and then it would be cataloged. You would uh, catalog it later on. So there would be like lab work that you would have to do. If it rained one day, you might spend the whole day doing lab work. And that would be just uh, categorizing the different things that were found. Uh, say you found a uh, pottery shirt. So they're, they're called like sherds. With glass, I guess it's shard, but the pottery I guess, is sherd. So you would have to categorize sherds or if you found some like red ochre that I guess they had used ceremonial purposes. If you found um, any, any, you know, a- anything else, you would have to carefully label everything. And there were, you would have to... Uh, if you found an object that was larger than a about I think it was about a half an inch or so, it would have to be piece plotted, and that you would uh, have to put down the exact coordinates of exactly where you found the larger object. And you would usually use like a dangling an object that would be dangling from a string, and then you'd have to measure the. Uh, vertical and horizontal, you know, coordinates of where you found it. That could be very time-consuming. I know in some other sites, like the Coster site from the 70s, because they found so many artifacts, they actually were not piece-plotting everything, because if they did, they would um, be, they would still be doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they did not piece-plot everything. 
they had a way of um, like gridding things more and breaking it down into sections. So there was also another thing you had to do where you had to soil describe. So you had to describe the uh, color of the soil. If the soil is darker, then that means there was an occupation there because the dark soil is the result of decaying organic matter. The soil was light, that meant there was no occupation. So that's how you know they were able to see like the layer cake I was talking about earlier. You had areas of dark soil, then there would be light soil, no one lived there, and then dark again, then light. Sometimes there would be periods where no one had lived the site for a thousand years. They had abandoned it. And then they would come back later. They would always come back to this site. You know, because like I said, I think because of it being so plentiful and having so much food resources there. You mentioned that whenever they found an artifact, they would plot where they found it and they would keep all these details and these records. So were there any exceptionally interesting things that you found while you were on this site? And were there also any interesting things that they found in the past? Did they ever find anything exceptionally noteworthy? Uh, yes. Well, when I was there, uh, like I said, in my unit, we were not finding a whole lot. We did find some pottery, um, which was cool. But uh, the unit right next to mine, they kept finding so many things, all kinds of pottery and just a lot of different things, big chunks of pottery. And uh, the late woodland people, they would use pottery. Before that, I'm told they would use baskets mostly. But at this point, it was pottery. So that was good. Um, we were able to, you know, find pottery. You have something that's a bit more tangible than if it were like a basket, it would have broken down over the years. But, uh, yeah, pottery, um, I remember we were just like doing a site scrape, scraping the walls down of the site and a little chert blade popped right out and, you know, it was made out of yeah, chert, which is like a form of flint, a lot of chert in this area. So lot, lots of chert. In fact, I even recall one of the people there saying that if I am in school in the fall and I ever see a, per, a piece of chert again, I'm going to scream. But yeah, we um, found a little chert blade popped out. And the cool thing about that and what I really liked about this the most would be, you know, you find something like that. You're the first person to touch this in about a thousand years. Oh, yeah, I can imagine how that would be an exciting feeling, especially if it is something that, you know, is not just a mundane thing like a piece of pottery. I remember, I think it was like two or three years ago, hearing a story about a couple of people who were hiking in, I want to say, I don't know if it was Greenland or if it was somewhere in Northern Europe, but they saw something interesting on the ground and they found out it was an old Viking sword. Hmm. And it was in surprisingly good condition. And another, uh, there was a tomb of, I think it was either a Chinese emperor or general, where they found the guy's sword. And the the because of how well the scabbard was constructed, the blade was still very, very sharp and in very oh, good wow. condition. So yeah. I can understand how, yeah, it would be interesting holding like, uh, you know, finding something like that you know, like a sword or a weapon of some kind and holding it and thinking, you know, 
I'm, you know, might be the first person to have touched this in, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years. And then you're thinking, okay, this thing I'm holding, was it ever, what was it used for? If you're like holding some ancient sword, it's like, okay, was this used to, was this ever used to kill somebody? So kind of morbid, I guess, but still something interesting to think about. But right, you can't help but to wonder. And, you know, people would find some arrowheads. And the interesting thing about this site is that the late woodland people were the first people to make use of the bow and arrow. Before that, they used what's called an atlatl, which is like a spear thrower. They would use that before. But, yeah, starting around 800, that was when uh, you start seeing, like, arrowheads popping up, like a bit smaller than... The, the spear points but uh you would you would find more of that and that we certainly did find another interesting find and i sent you the picture was of the uh turtle shell so a thousand yeah. year old turtle shell and there was some like ochre that was covered it for some sort of ceremonial significance but they're not sure exactly what it may have been but yeah, we had found that and also a stone axe. The stone axe was probably, in my opinion, the coolest find that um, had been found there. I didn't find it. You know, someone else did in another unit. But, uh, you know, that was pretty cool. What I found was this giant, and I sent you a picture, was this big chunk of limestone in the corner of the unit. And that most likely, they used a lot of limestone for fires in that. And most likely that's what it was used for. But that was what's called a feature, what they refer to a feature on archaeological sites. And a feature is basically anything that you can't just pick up right out of the ground and quickly put in a bag. But one thing I do want to add about all this is when you're digging, you have to make the bottom of the site completely level. And you have the line level to check to make sure that the ground is all completely level. You have to measure. So when you're digging, you have would go down I think a few centimeters at a time, and then you would have to get it checked by the site supervisor, and it had to be completely flat and smooth. And if you went, a, say, a few centimeters below, and it wasn't completely level, you would have to make the whole entire... Um, bottom part of the unit level just like curiosity why did it have to be perfectly level for the records that they would take they wanted it to look completely level because of uh based on what you would find you're keeping records of what you would find at each level so before you would progress to another level you had to record everything at each each level so uh if it wasn't all completely level you went a little low in a corner then you had to take your trowel and level off everything. And that could be very time consuming sometimes and, and kind of frustrating <laughs> as well. I know yeah. I, I did that. I'm, I probably did that at least twice so, <laughs> where I went a little too low and we had to level everything off and took some time. Yeah. Is this field camp something that you would consider doing again in the future or is it something you would recommend other people give a shot to if they're uh, interested in archaeology? I certainly would recommend it. I, I thought it was a great experience. If people are interested in archaeology, I think they would definitely love this. Now, with that said, not everyone who went on this liked it. 
the first week, I don't want to say I hated it, but I was like nervous because in doing all this, I felt all this lower back pain. And, uh, you know, I took some Tylenol and that, but there was this like sharp lower back pain. And I was worried that this would last the whole time, you know, that it would go, but my body kind of adjusted to it. And then that went away and I was fine. So I didn't like the first week as much, but then I really liked it after that. And I know there were some people who did not like it at all. There was one person who was counting down the hours of who, you know, <laughs> when they could leave. And, wow. you know, but uh, there were other people that loved it. So, yeah, it all kind of is a matter of perception, I guess. Depends on, you know, what you like and how you perceive everything. I know after the fact, I um, began reading more about it and I began to like it more. If uh, someone were to uh, go on this, I recommend getting this book called Coster, um, Americans in Search of Their Prehistoric Past, written by the founder of the CAA, Stuart Strieber. I would definitely recommend getting this. This is kind of one of those books that could really suck a person into archaeology, really get them, make them want to do it, because it's really a very readable book. And he talks about all sorts of things, the people involved in the site, all the things that, like, I talked about. They do, of course, have a website, caa-archaeology.org, and they have different programs. I did the adult field school. There's an advanced field school. Now, one thing to keep in mind, and I didn't know this, the advanced field school doesn't do a dig, from what I understand. The adult field school does. And now... They have a new program they just implemented, which uh, I think is very interesting and even useful. And that's uh, a program where they show you all the archaeological techniques. We were do only doing what's called phase three archaeology. But with the new field school, they will cover more of phase one, phase two, you know, the uh, finding the site and all that. And it's specifically designed for people who want to get into CRM and become archaeological technicians. They want to get like a position in that with a CRM company or government. You you could and you would you would have the training from the, this program. So sounds like you had a very interesting and educational time. No punching Nazis required. No, none none of that. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> No, no, no Nazis, none, none of that. And, uh, yeah, just a very cool experience, cool town. You know, I'll be completely honest. I just recently got back from a trip that I had gone on for about a little over three weeks and cost actually more money than I would care to admit. And I, yet, I think this was a better, I don't know if I necessarily call it like a vacation or a trip, but I think this field school is something I liked more, you know, to oh, be cool. honest. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me today, Jeff. And uh, before we end the episode today, you do have a YouTube channel where you do talk about some of the places you've been, just, you know, little videos that sometimes might only be uh, about five minutes long. I know you've got a few that are longer, but where if people wanted to see some of your strange and interesting videos on YouTube, where can they find them? Corm 1000, C-O-R-M 
1,000 on YouTube. And I upload videos, not always regularly. Um, I have some up there that I put up recently that, that were largely based on the trip I just went on. I do hope to get a video up there where I talk about what we talked about today. So I do hope to get a video up there. I probably should have done it right after I got back from the field school, but uh, one thing led to another and I just never got around to it. So I do intend on putting up something related to, you know, what we talked about today. Okay. And I know you also have a couple of videos you've posted about Bachelor's Grove Cemetery. And I know that's actually a topic I'd like to explore uh, sometime in the future because I've heard it's supposed to be one of the most paranormally active uh, cemeteries in the U.S. Yes. Yeah. I do have a video on that. If you are into the paranormal and ghosts and sites like that, I would Right, you know, you might want to check that out. I round, I would say, about 19 minutes into the video. Something goes across the screen, some kind of a mist. I don't know what it is. Not saying it's necessarily a ghost, but it's something. So, yeah, yeah if you want to, you know, you check that video out um, if you're interested in that sort of thing. So. I'd like to thank you again, Jeff, for joining me for this conversation. I'd like to thank the audience for listening. And until next time, stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio, look us up on Facebook, and email us at POI Game Studio at gmail.com. <laughs>